live online and on your mobile this this is dcufm news hi everyone and welcome back to newswire talks i'm kira o'loughlin on the panel today we have anya o'boyle Eva o'brien and anya zowers on today's show we'll be discussing a possible hard border is college the right choice for everyone gender equality in higher education and finally trump's national emergency but first we have our hourly news bulletin the Catholic Diocese of Waterford and Lismore has said it had no money to pay its priests' wages at Christmas. A major decrease in donations left administrators to borrow from diocese funds to pay the 60-odd priests last September. A total of €5,000 was sought from each parish in December for the last quarterly salary payment. There may be a shortage of funds for the following payment due to priests in March. More than 100 families are dealing with cases of narcolepsy in their children after taking the drug Pandemerix in 2011. The drug has been untested when children were given a double dose against swine flu in 2011 and a single dose in 2009-2010. A total of 75 cases against the state are being handled. Teachers top the scale for all graduates and have the best chance of landing a job after college according to a new survey. The gender pay gap remains an issue for graduates, with a difference of almost €4,000 recorded between young men's and women's pay. The Higher Education Authority survey confirms that average starting salaries hit €38,701 for graduates from education courses. And finally, the Game of Thrones author George R.R. Martin will be visiting Belfast for TitanCon 2019 between August 22nd and 25th. That's all the news for now. Remember, you can keep up to date with us on Twitter and Instagram at DCUMPS News. On Friday evening, US President Donald Trump declared a national emergency on the issue of the Mexican border. I'm going to be signing a national emergency. And it's been signed many times before. It's been signed by other presidents from 19... 77 or so, it gave the presidents the power. We're talking about an invasion of our country with drugs, with human traffickers, with all types of criminals and gangs. This came about following the U.S. Congress's refusal to give Trump access to billions of dollars worth of funding for the wall. Trump justified this decision by stating that the flow of criminals, drugs and illegal immigrants across the border constituted a threat to national security. In his national emergency speech, Trump stated that the number of illegal immigrants trying to get into America today are, quote, probably higher than they've ever been before. But according to statistics released by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, illegal border crossings reached an all-time high in the early years of the 21st century and have considerably declined since. In 2017, Arrests made on border crossings were at their lowest levels since 1971. Trump also declared that construction of certain areas of the wall were currently underway, which was proven to be a false claim according to the US Customs and Border Protection, who said that instead, existing fencing along the border has simply been renovated. The President's decision caused immediate condemnation among Democrats that hailed it as being unconstitutional and vowed to overturn it. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker in the House of Representatives, publicly spoke out against Trump's decision. 
I know the Republicans have some unease about it, no matter what they say, uh, because if the president can declare an emergency on something that he has created as an emergency, an, an, an illusion that he wants to convey, just think of what a president with different values can present to the American people. So the precedent that the president is setting here is something that should be met with great unease and dismay uh, by the Republicans. And to talk about a national emergency, let's talk about today, the one-year anniversary of another manifestation of the epidemic of gun violence in America. That's a national emergency. Why don't you declare that emergency, Mr. President? I wish you would. So a recent report has just came out um, that, you know, there was an article there in the Irish Times um, and it was, there was a report from um, the Higher Education Institute saying basically that, um, you know, people who go to universities are more likely to finish their degrees than people that go to ITs. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in, in this article now by the Irish Times, it was, you know, outlining saying that people who, you know, are attending kind of lower point courses aren't actually finishing their degrees. I thought it was really interesting, actually, the other day I saw a report released from IT Sligo and 33% of students in IT Sligo will drop out of their course. 33? And I thought that was an incredibly high statistic, yeah. considering that's about a third of their students who may not be suited to college at all and then they might feel pressured into going in the first place and then you get there and it's like oh this isn't for me at all yeah and you have to you have to drop out in the end so I think it really highlights the culture in Ireland of kind of almost making it a cultural norm that everyone when they finish school they go to college because yeah. there's just not that many options available for them at the moment so there is an interesting point that I saw in the Irish Times article um, saying that the decision to go to college mainly relies on the Irish mammy. Yeah, that was I found that interesting. so interesting. That was actually from a report, an unpublished report uh, commissioned by the Department of Education. Mm. Um, I suppose it is true for yeah. some some families. It definitely is an issue. Like you will always have students who kind of go through second level, haven't got a huge amount of interest in studying. Yeah. They're not working hard, but you have the Irish mammy there in the background and you have to do your work and you have to get your grades up because mm -hmm. if you don't, there's nothing. Yeah. But that's a cultural problem. That That isn't necessarily a problem with the person. Obviously, it's important to have work ethic, but not everybody needs to be studious no, in terms no. of the books. No. There, there should be options there for people who can't kind of embrace that sort of system of learning. Yeah. There's a real lack of um there's real lack of jobs available in the kind of trade sectors. There's yeah. no focus being put on people coming out of college and actually learning a trade because they might not want to go to college in the first mm -hmm. place. However, one of the points in the article was that Ireland is actually one of the most overqualified countries mm -hmm. in that People have these degrees, we're qualified for so many professions and there are not jobs in them. No. It is these trades that we need people to be working Absolutely. in. There is a severe yeah. shortage of people in the trade sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like it said now um, in the Irish Times article that young men with low CAO points, um, they're the ones at particular risk. Um, 
because, you know, they're going into courses kind of just because they have the points to go into them. Yeah. And not necessarily because, you know, they want to. Yeah. And one of the huge issues with the point system is people feel that they need to do a course close to the points they got. Mm -hmm. So say, yeah. for example, someone gets 500 points, they're like, oh, you know, I need to do a course up there. I don't want to be doing one 200 and, yeah, you exactly. know, all that kind of thing. But I mean... I'm surprised that it says the Irish mammy has such an influence because obviously your parents have the most influence of anyone mm -hmm. in your life. But for this kind of matter, I thought it was, you know, mainly what goes on in schools. Yeah. Another yeah. issue with it, though, is that ITs generally provide courses with lower points. They are a lower level access route to what is provided by your college or university. However, that's not necessarily reflective of the difficulty of the course. Mm -hmm. People, by and large, in this country, there is a stereotype about attending an IT. So people try to aim to go to a college yeah. or a university. And so it's a supply and demand system. The yeah. points are put there based on how many people want to do the course. Yeah. So some of these ITs are providing really difficult courses quite similar to what's being provided in a college if they're providing a mm -hmm. level 8 degree. Absolutely. And yet the points are not reflective mm -hmm. of what they would be at a university level. And so you do have these people who are going in on lower points to a course that might be an equivalent of 200 points higher in a university and still expected to do the same work, to come out with the same degree. Yeah. But the ability just isn't there, and that is extremely disheartening. You get into this course, a lot of these people, they this is what they want to do. Nobody goes in thinking, I'm going to start this course and I really hope I drop out. Yeah. That That is nobody's intention no, going to college. Yeah. And I think something definitely has to be done in terms of how we're allocating the points for these courses, yeah. especially in terms of ITs where there is a stigma around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, um, one of the main things outlined was the consequences of dropping out. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that's like a big financial burden. Yeah. So say say someone drops out of a course um, and they decide it's not what they want to do. The next year is full fees. So it's like... Exactly, yeah. For most courses, it's, you know, seven grand they have to yeah, pay yeah. next year. And, you know, if you get the Susie grant, you, you don't get that. And that's seven yeah. grand. So, yeah. I mean, just... Does there need to be more done in schools? Do schools need to, you know, have more guidance counsellors? Do they need to promote, you know, apprenticeships? Like, mm -hmm. what more? Like, why is Ireland so obsessed with third-level qualifications? Mm -hmm. Structurally, there definitely needs to be a change. Guidance counsellors in this country generally are not valued, mm -hmm. and they would be if they were doing their job correctly. A lot of them have started to advocate more for maybe putting down a level seven course, but they're they're delivering it in a way that it's almost it's almost like an insult to the student. I don't think you're capable of this, so mm -hmm. there's this here too. It's not delivered in a way that you can still you can still achieve from this. You can still be successful, and I think there needs to be a whole structural kind of reimagination of how we're delivering third level education. Yeah. I know in my school, though, there, w there was not a huge focus on what you're actually going to do once you leave your school. We had maybe one um, career guidance counselling mm -hmm. uh, session a week for maybe 10 minutes. Like That is not enough no. for a student to be able to know their options and be able to find out what they can actually do once they leave the school. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, that's there. Um, it's an article from the Irish Times, and it was called Too Many People in Ireland Going to College and Unsuited to It. Um, it was written because there was a report made out that um, more people are dropping out of institutions than they are of third level universities. We're going to take a quick ad break now, but make sure to stay tuned as we will be having a discussion about a possible hard border and some American anti-abortion campaigners. And now we're going to take a look at the news over the last hour. Mr Moonlight trial, a guard that told the court he thought Bobby Ryan could have been assaulted and left to die in the tank. And no deal Brexit. A new report has warned that young people in the north could be groomed into violent activity if a hard border returns. Ballyfermot, a man was attached as a paedophile hunting group broadcasted a live sting on Facebook. The courts, a Cork camogie player is to plead not guilty to assault charges. And finally, splitters, seven UK Labour MPs quit the party claiming it's institutionally anti-Semitic and run by the machine of the hard left. Yeah, so um, that's a recent article um, that came out today from the journal, um, basically saying that, you know, if a hard border comes in, that young people will be groomed into violence. So... I guess the question I have for the panel is will this happen or is this more of a worst case scenario kind of judgment on the journal's behalf? Well, the judgment aside, I guess the hard border returning in itself is worst case scenario. Mm. But if the hard border does return, then I don't think this is worst case scenario at all. I think it's a very harsh reality. It's definitely, it seems to be that a lot of people at the moment are kind of projecting their, what the worst outcome yeah. will be. This will absolutely be one of the worst outcomes because it's such a reminder of the, the traumatic history that Ireland has already gone through. And then having a hard border reinstated just makes it a reality once again. So I, I can see why they're, they're projecting this on. Yeah, well, like ever since the Good Friday Agreement um, rates of you know mental health issues and suicide in the north a young, among young men has absolutely soared mm -hmm. and you know if you talk to especially in some communities in Derry um, there are a lot of young men you know 18 to 25 and you know if you ask them you know wh like what are your feelings if the troubles come back they're like oh I'd love it like I'd absolutely love it because mm -hmm. You know, these men, like, say, their their fathers would have, like, grown up fighting mm -hmm. and, you know, they're, it's, it's being, like, idolised all the yeah. time. And, you know, a lot of these men have, you know, mental health issues because they have nothing to do. They're not working and they feel like if the troubles were to come back, like, oh, they'd have a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I absolutely don't think that this is out of the realms of possibility at all. Like... The article highlights that in another way then as well, um, making reference to the, agree the agreement generation. So those people that were alive in the times of the troubles when things were at its very worst, that they can't talk about it. It's, it's not something that's discussed. And so the younger generation who were not around at that time are only hearing about it on TV. They might, re they might learn about it in school and it's it's becoming romanticized. Mm. 
and it's very it's very easy to get kind of drawn back into that to not realize the harshness of it that this is this is your brother or your sister it's your mother that's going to be attacked that if you do something it does have consequences and it comes back upon you and i think that i think that is a very a very fair point that's made in the article it's probably one of the strongest kind of arguments for this happening mm. yeah like this article now was kind of written around a new report that came out um, from I think it was three yeah oh sorry two professors um, and they were just kind of warning that you know there's just so many people that are up the north are susceptible <laughs> um, to be recruited like by the new IRA um, but I mean it they had a part saying how to prevent this yeah. but I mean I think the um the timeliness of this issue is also highlighted in this article. They're saying that in as little as six weeks it's possible that a hard border could materialise. So that is so soon and mm. there's no provisions in place for say all these people start to you know, the hard border comes about and these people do get groomed by the yeah. by the new IRA. So it's I think it's an issue that's definitely playing on people's minds a lot at the moment. Definitely. Like they mentioned in the article that if the hard border goes through, there'll be an increase in violence, which mm -hmm. will then generally lead to an increase in security costs yeah. and in prison numbers then. Of um, course, one of the other issues then, if the hard border does materialise, if we do leave with a no-deal Brexit, then you have the danger of there being a very quick turnaround for a referendum on a united Ireland. Yeah. yeah. And the danger is, I mean, if that's all 32 counties voting for that, by and large, I think in the south of Ireland, people will want that. Mm. But there are still an awful lot of unionists in the north. We've managed to live peacefully for the last number of years. And there is a huge danger there if that is kind of rushed through, that it won't be thought about, mm -hmm. even in terms of the financial cost of kind of getting yeah. back to a full republic. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of being talked about everywhere. Um, will there be United Ireland? And, you know, people aren't really... I mean, people are looking at it in a, like idealistic way, and that's just definitely not going to happen. I mean, it's there is no, there's no provisions in place no. for this to actually happen. People are not prepared for the consequences of yeah. a united Ireland at the moment. Now, one thing that I suppose does have to be looked at is... The report was, com the, I think the report is 377 pages or something along those mm -hmm. lines, but it was commissioned by a member of Fianna Fáil, our leading opposition party, and they are absolutely trying to drive home the message that Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael, that they're not coming to an agreement, that they cannot get us a deal, mm -hmm. that their inability to lead the country, their inadequacies at forming this deal between the UK and the EU, that they're not doing their part and this is the message they want to drive home. Fine Gael cannot lead our country and because of that we are going to be back to the troubles. And I do think that has to be weighed into the report definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it was commissioned for a reason. They didn't come out with this report hoping that it would say look if there is no deal all is going to be rosy in the mm -hmm. garden they're doing a great job we don't want to be in power it's it, there's definitely a power dynamic to yeah. it and i think that's very important yeah. to note 
Yeah, so we're going to take a really quick ad break now, but afterwards uh, we are going to be discussing uh, the story that was the front page of the Times Ireland edition today um, about anti-abortion campaigners. So the front page of the Times today, the Times Ireland edition that is, um, it's a huge, huge story now. Mm -hmm. It fills almost all of the front page and then there is a whole spread on it a few pages later. Um, so basically, Ellen Coyne and Katie O'Neill, two reporters for the Times, um, basically they went undercover. Um, they were looking at a group called SAFL, so it's called Sidewalk Advocates for Life. Um, so I'll just read out a piece from the paper that kind of sums up sums up what they're doing. So uh, Bethany Mistrata, a, a national program manager at SAFL, told a reporter posing as a potential activist that hopefully Irish doctors were charging women for pregnancy tests so that activists could undercut doctors by offering them free of charge. Activists are told to use large colourful coupons for free ultrasound scans or pregnancy tests as a way to seal the deal and get women into anti-abortion agencies, in some cases even promising access to a woman's centre that does not charge. So basically this organisation, it's, it's in the States, um, they get activists to, you know, doorstep, go outside these these um, clinics and kind of it's it's basically just you know not even convincing them, forcing them. It's just not complete to get scaremongering, really. That's that's a good word. You yeah. know, if if you're a woman in a crisis pregnancy and this person is standing outside there, and it does come across as a as a form of harassment. Um, it's it's incredibly scary for for someone to have to encounter. Even though in this article they have highlighted that they're trying to not use aggressive um, anti-abortion language, it's still incredibly scary for anyone who would be experiencing that. One of the most poignant points in the interview, or in the article, then as well, is. Obviously, with abortion, one of the points that's often made around it is that in favour of it is that if a woman has been raped and has fallen pregnant due to rape, that abortion kind of, it's generally seen as kind of more allowable, I guess. Mm -hmm. And one of the points in the article is that they're basically saying that abortion is the equivalent to rape, which for anyone that has suffered that that is going into a clinic that that is absolute scaremongering that that is the worst and least yeah. thing you possibly want to hear at that time it reminds me so much it was actually um an article done maybe it was before the referendum so i think it was about a year ago maybe longer even maybe two years ago uh, where one of their reporters went undercover as well and went into one of the irish you know places that you know talk to women who are going through crisis yeah, pregnancies yeah. and they said that you know if you get an abortion you'll get breast cancer like <sighs> it just, just it's complete it lies that, that are being told to women and i thought it was really interesting in this article that the um the SAFL is it they're trying to almost have like marketing techniques yeah. to stop women from going to these places like oh use bright colored um signs yeah, yeah or, and, and coupons, coupons yeah and you know that'll stop them from going through with this life-changing decision yeah. that that no one is going to take lightly. But my favorite part of the article was so 
So basically these activists who are going out trying to stop women having abortions, they give them care packages. Yeah. Um, mm. So in the care packages, um, or they're called blessing bags, they <laughs> fill them with chocolate, lipstick and anti-abortion leaflets. But if they think, if these campaigners think that you um, have a lower income, uh, they give you a more expensive lipstick <sighs> so that uh, they think that you have money and that you will financially support them if they go through with having the baby. But um, That's crazy. the journalist who went undercover in this, you know, asked, well, like, do you have the mm. money to financially support these women? You know, if, if the case is that these women are having abortions because they aren't financially stable and can't afford it, are you going to give them the money for, you know, as you're saying? And they're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. It's, it's a very good article um, that's, that's in the Times today. And it just goes to show that the anti-abortion sentiment in Ireland is still very strong. And mm. it's, it's really crazy that Americans have actually seen what's gone on in Ireland and are trying to target the women over here I think th I, I think there's definitely always going to be some amount of an anti-abortion sentiment oh, in any country yeah. where abortion is legalised you're always going to have people for and against and if it's a case that you are providing someone with the facts this is what abortion is this is what your body is going through this is what the baby is going through people are entitled to that information they're entitled to give it mm -hmm. but by and large people who are having this who are having an abortion they know what they're going through at that point another quote that was in the article by um, one of the leaders of this kind of anti-abortion group was that the undercover journalists are revealing their market strategies and techniques it shouldn't be a technique it shouldn't mm. be some kind of mind game no. to convince not, someone to have a child advertising company. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. this like it's a baby's life that it's a person's life you're talking about at this point and that's not a mind game no exactly um i think it was very interesting you know in in the spread they had you know so so this is happening in america but the reason why they're coming out with it now is because they are actually setting up, you know, campaigns over here, mm -hmm. as, as you guys were saying, you know. Um, but it is really mad to think that, you know, as little as Ireland is, like, they, they're they so concerned about us. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very strange. I can't even understand the, I don't, the I, reasons. It definitely has to do, though, with building up little bases. Yeah, mm -hmm. Ireland absolutely. is a small country by and large, despite kind of all the liberal legislation that has gone through in the past, there are still a lot of staunch conservatives mm -hmm. in Ireland. There's a lot of an older population in Ireland. It's an easy place to target. Yeah. And if you kind of set up enough small little groups like this, eventually, do you know, you go to market your campaign, I suppose you could call it, their business then they have all these supports there behind it, all these other countries, small or not, it makes no difference. When they go to advertise it, well, everyone in Ireland, everyone wherever they try next, is also following us here. We know what we're talking about. It's not just us. And it's to get away from that notion of isolation, that they're not the minority. So by building up small little base camps in countries around the globe, then you start to become the majority again. And it is the majority viewpoint that by and large dominates society. 
And if you can convince people that you're the majority, then you stand a good chance of winning. Yeah, very good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the most you know, craziest things about this whole article was actually um, one of the images that was in, in the physical paper. And it's someone holding up a sign saying, make unborn babies great again. <laughs> picture definitely speaks a thousand words in, there yeah. in, that, in that case I mean like I'm actually just like gobsmacked I mean they're talking about such a oh. sensitive issue yeah. and that's a, like that just seems like a joke Yeah. Mm. Oh, like, absolutely. no matter what your stand is on, mm-hmm. in, is on the issue no matter who you support whatever that's, that's kind of just taking the piss mm-hmm. So that's all we have time for today. Thank you all for tuning in to Newswire. I'm Aoife O'Brien. I'm Anya O'Boyle. I'm Anya Zowers. And I'm Kira O'Loughlin. Uh, make sure to keep up with us at DCU MPS News and we go live again on Thursday at 6pm. Hello everyone and welcome back to Newswire Talks, our weekly news talk show that gives you the lowdown on everything that's happening in DCU at the moment and also nationally. Up first is our DCU news. DCUSU has delayed the USI disaffiliation referendum and Nubar Couch is yet to be returned after being stolen. And in the national press, our student literacy rates on a steady decline. Theresa May says an extension will only de- delay Brexit decisions. The USI condemns delayed tenancies legislation. And finally, Metrolink plans need to coexist with Dublin communities. But first, we have our hourly news news bulletin. A young girl who was seriously injured in a boating accident at the weekend is a very good-natured, kind child, her school principal said today. The girl was one of four girls and a boy who were on board a rowing boat that capsized on a stretch of the River Shannon. All five were part of a group from Athlochtand Boat Club, which headed out in the river sometime around 9am. A Silicon Valley-based high-tech company is to develop a new research and development centre in Northern Ireland, which is expected to create 150 jobs. The firm specialises in protecting businesses from online fraud. Signified, which was founded by former PayPal and FedEx employees, said the company's first investment in Northern Ireland will help expand its European operations. According to Raj Ramanad, co-founder and chief executive of the US company, It had explored a number of potential investment locations before deciding on Belfast. British Prime Minister Theresa May has given a statement on what the options are in delivering Brexit from an Arab-EU summit in Egypt. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar met with the Prime Minister earlier this morning. And finally, Mumford & Sons have announced a concert at Dublin's Malahide Castle next summer. The UK Folk rockers will join Norway's Aurora and local Axe Wild Youth and Dermot Kennedy in the Gentlemen of the Road gig on Friday, June 14th. Tickets go on sale Friday, March 1st, starting from 69.75. That's been your news for now. Keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at DCUMPS News. So at the moment, um, kind of, you know, in DCU, everything they're seeing everywhere, and I mean, it's going to be absolutely saturated tomorrow, is the elections. And we know that every year, uh, usually now, um, with the SU elections, so, I mean, for anyone listening who is unsure of uh, what we mean here, you know, every college has a student's union, 
um, and in DCU we have five sabbatical officers so it is their full-time job um, to look after students and that kind of thing but every single year um, usually anyway um, along with the SU elections I mean usually comes at least one referendum doesn't there yeah I think last year um, it, we saw uh, the abortion referendum seeing what DCU stance was on that mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong the year before that was the United Ireland and um, that was last year that as well. That was last yeah. year as well. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it? Okay, so they were they were the ones last year, um, and then this year we have uh, three referendums coming up, possibly a fourth. Um, and the fourth one is basically that um, should DCU uh, students union uh, disaffiliate with the USI. Uh, so currently uh, DCU is affiliated with the USI, which is the Union of Students in Ireland, and um, we get you know. The aim is to get support from them on kind of matters and big matters and they're kind of, you know, the next level up for every college. Um, and it costs a fee for um, the college out of students, student levy, uh, to go towards that. Um, so basically, uh, DCU, um, DCU's current students' union, um, they wanted to uh, do a referendum asking students if uh, we should disaffiliate uh, with uh, the USI or not. Um, However, um, a lot of societies weren't happy with this, a lot of just students in general weren't happy with this and uh, didn't feel like um, students' input was taken. Um, It usually costs um, 400, let me just double check now, it's 425 signatures are required uh, for a referendum. Uh, to be passed, to be asked to um, students in DCU um, and that quota was not obtained so um, tonight there is going to be an emergency uh, class rep meeting uh, where I presume that they are going to to decide this um, there hasn't been too much talk about it in DCU press but Trinity News did an article on it mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of highlighting that there wasn't really much communication between the SU sabbaticals and the actual students of DCU and I think that's originally why a petition was kind of circulating to bring um, to bring forth an emergency class rep council on this issue and it kind of raises the question of whether this emergency class rep council would have happened if students hadn't kind of shown that they weren't happy about this in the first place. I think it's it's not even really an opinion. It's, yeah, it, it wouldn't be. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, according to the minutes of the DCUSU executive meeting, which was on um, February 7th, um, the five the five people who were, who were on the students' union who were um, a part of the sabbatical team, um, they decided to bring um, the referendum forward um, so just to give some context, the referendum, we last had a referendum on whether we would, whether or not DCU would stay affiliated with the USI in 2016. That wasn't due to come back up again for a referendum until next year. The five sabbatical op- officers kind of took it into their own hands to push for this referendum. So the 425 signatures that they were required to get on a petition were they only brought that to the executive board of DCU 
generally speaking, with a referendum like this, it's not the sabbatical officers that push for a referendum. It usually comes from class rep council, mm -hmm. which is coming from the students. So it's extremely unusual for our sabbaticals to be pushing for a referendum in the first place. It came out that they were looking to disaffiliate from the USI before it was ever brought to the attention of the class rep council. So the major issue is that they haven't consulted with student bodies. They haven't reached the number of signatures that were necessary on the petition. And now they're having to backtrack, go back to the class rep councils and start a petition up again which will inevitably push the referendum forward and it is very unlikely at this point that that referendum will take place in conjunction with the elections next week. I think it's also very important to note that the whole student council or student union they weren't all in agreement with this actually going through and that um, the president of the SU he had the deciding vote in the end and um, that brought this issue to um, to the forefront and um, it's very interesting also that this article in Trinity News notes that um, there was previously a lack of attendance and engagement from the DCUSU president at any sort of USI events and national councils but that DCUSU had never before actually communicated that they were dissatisfied with any element of the USI until now basically. Yeah, so I think the, the major push here, um, you know, to reconsider this referendum was from the students themselves and was from societies. I think the LGBTA society definitely pushed on their Facebook um, <coughs> how unhappy they were um, with, with this yeah. referendum going ahead. Um, you know, they outlined that they've received a lot of support um, from the USI really um, and then FEMSOC as well mm -hmm. you know it's kind of I think the in these kind of situations it, it's the minority kind of groups in society that you know do get do get a lot out of being yeah, a part absolutely. of these, these kind of communities and feel like there's something backing them up if you know they go to their students union about something and I mean if this goes ahead um, if you go to DCUSU about something and you're dissatisfied with the help you receive or whatever you receive uh, that's the end of your call yeah. whereas when the USI um, you, th when the university is a part of the USI you have that next that next kind of step and higher authority almost over DCUSU and it just kind of unites all the SUs across the country it's much easier to organise like campaigns and protests and stuff when you're all operating under one kind of body and you can have your smaller groups within that I think I think if if, if this referendum goes ahead um, the current SU need to really explain where the money is going because Definitely. I suppose the biggest factor behind this is that you know they're dissatisfied with what they're getting from the USI and it does cost money to be a yeah. part of the USI um, but I mean that doesn't that, that doesn't mean at all that students you know it's still going to cost the same like next year's fees will still be the same as yeah. this year whether we're in the USI or not so I mean they would need to you know have a really good reason for where this money would go and how that would and be very clear about where they're allocating it to I one particularly interesting part of it though is that 
DCUSU are claiming that they would like to disaffiliate from the USI because they do not feel they're receiving the amount of support that would kind of correlate with the amount of money that we are paying mm. to be part of it. But if we look, ba- if we go back to the whole idea of the minority groups benefiting from it, Sheila Cahill said in an article with the College View that DCU have had a lot of influence over the USI pol- policies in the last number of years. One of the things that the USI introduced was a part-time officer for postgraduates who are often a forgotten group Mm -hmm. in the college kind of system. But with colleges disaffiliating from the USI, obviously they're receiving less funding. And so their ability to help and target these minority groups to give them the supports that they need becomes less and less. So already we have UCD no longer a part of the USI, the same with UL. If it goes through for DCU, that's a lot of funding that our national student body is losing. And so that's a lot more students that are going to continue to be forgotten. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, we are going to be discussing more on um, that referendum, uh, which may or may not be going ahead, and the three referendums uh, that are going ahead next Monday on our referendum special. Um, Anya, what is the next story? Well, a Newbark couch has been abducted in plain sight, <laughs> um, the College View reported last week, and an offer of a 100 euro bar tab, which it may also be increased, has been offered to entice whoever this thief is to bring back the missing sofa to Newbar. So it's quite a funny story, really. I mean, I can't really and do fathom. We know, do we know, um, like, how was the couch stolen? Like, I don't understand what happened there. Well, um, it was said that the couch was left at the top of the venue, which is a big kind of room for shows and... Stage, really. It's a stage, it? really, yeah, that we have here in DCU in the U. And it was left there, and someone apparently took it, and it was only noticed to be missing on Wednesday... Um, after the previous shite night, which was held on Tuesday. And the last time it was officially seen was last Friday. So, it, Oh, wait, been, where was it seen? Then? Yeah, it, it was seen at the venue there. Um, oh, okay. And then it was officially realised that it was actually missing on the Wednesday, Wednesday. After, after shite night. Well, that makes a bit more sense. I mean, it sounded like a crazy, interesting article um, if it had just literally been taken out of the bar while it was in the bar. Yeah, that's what I initially kind of thought that had happened. But um, no, it seemed to have been outside because a lot of the furniture does get moved around for um, every Tuesday night. So I wondered, was that, well, obviously it's a bit of a, you know, marketing stunt from (laughs) Newbar to say, you know, um, whoever stole the couch, if you bring it back, we'll give you a hundred euro bar top. Mm. But I think they are taking inspiration from that, from other clubs that have done things like that before. Like, I know Carbon in Galway, um, it was, like, all over Facebook a few Christmases ago. Um, people stole, like, a big floor mat. Oh, kind really? Of like a big roll. <laughs> um, and they said, if you can get it in, um, pass the bouncers without them notice, and we'll give you a hundred euro. I don't know how much it was, but we'll mm. give you a bar tab anyway. And uh, they went out on 12 pubs, and they dressed up as, um, like, Santa. I don't know what they dressed up as, and the, the mat was, like... Oh. <laughs> 
it was up in the costume but yeah that's just um a nice light-hearted story that's mm-hmm. been kind of going around dcu um dcu the past few days so yeah that's all from our dcu news so we're going to take a quick break now uh but make sure to st- stay tuned in for the latest in the national press British Prime Minister Theresa May has admitted she will not get a new Brexit proposal in time for MPs to hold a meaningful vote this week. She has delayed the vote until March 12th, 17 days before Britain is due to leave the EU on March 29th. However, she has stated that an extension extension will only delay the decision making. Do you think a decision is about to happen? Are they going to give an extension for the Brexit proposal deal. What is likely to happen now for Britain? Are we going to crash out of the EU? Well, it seems that the likelihood of an extension is growing more and more likely as they reach the deadline of the 29th of March. So it seems like they don't really have any other options at the moment. Yeah, I was under the impression, and I think from all media, you know, we were saying there a few weeks ago, you know, this is it, it needs to be finalised, it needs to be decided, decided. but then everyone shortly realised, oh wait, no, an extension is possible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, an extension is in the best interest in, of, in everyone, even, you know, people who wanted to remain aren't happy with the deal and people who, you know, chose to leave aren't happy either. Um, however, Theresa May is saying that an extension, she doesn't want an extension, so I mean what is what is like what can be done reports coming from brussels only last night are supporting the idea that a long extension will be granted to the uk that would possibly delay the uk's departure until 2021 now this would give a huge extension in terms of a proposed agreement but it has been ongoing for a long time now definitely theresa may is unlikely to hang around until 2021 to see through the to see through that negotiation. Mm-hmm. See, I if they extend it until 2021, um, I mean, I can't remember what report was out, but it said that by 2022, if they were to do another referendum, the outcome would be completely different just from the sheer volume of people who have now turned 18, some people um, who were 16 two years ago are now 18 be able to vote, people who, you know, older generations who would have voted to leave um, may no longer be around. And I mean, a lot of people are saying, you know, it's unconstitutional to have another referendum because, you know, that's like flipping a coin and you getting heads and then being like, oh, do it mm-hmm. again, you know. Um, but it's the the deal hasn't like when when the pe- people of the UK voted for Brexit they weren't given an outline of what they were actually voting for no i don't think anyone really and truly understood what they were actually getting themselves into by going through this and i think the longer that they extend the process the more likely that people will be to look for a second referendum um Labour leader um, Jeremy Corbyn has said that Miss May was putting the country at risk by recklessly running down the clock to force MPs to choose between her bad deal and a disastrous no deal. That's a very strong statement to come out with. Absolutely. But I mean, that is the reality. 
and no one wants her deal as I said people like this isn't even a case of you know Remainers being bitter it people who voted for Brexit aren't even happy with the deal um, Leo Varadkar has described it as a lose-lose scenario and has said that um, he has confidence that the UK will not crash out of the EU without a deal on the 29th of March because they will either have a deal or they will have an extension so I mean the likelihood of them coming out with a deal by the 29th of March seems very unlikely at the moment in that time frame when they when um, the MPs have already shut down Theresa May's first proposal for a deal so look I think that um, there will be an extension but Theresa May is just saying this because she doesn't want people to think that you know maybe if she says now yeah there'll be an extension you'll probably have those people being like oh well you, you still have time you know and yeah. Maybe However, she's just the EU have said that while they can offer Britain assurances on the withdrawal deal, they will not provide something that changes its fundamental shape. So extending the deadline by a further two years to not alter anything other than to just reassure them that it's not a crash out of the EU, that they will have that they will still be able to build and sustain an economy. If they're not gaining anything extra. The, the EU are holding very rigid and very firm that they're not going to cave to the EU, The EU have lo or that they're not going to cave to the UK. The UK appear to have lost all power in negotiations. Theresa May has not made any strides in months with the EU. She has 100% agreed a deal that for Ireland is fantastic. We have the, the reassurance of the backstop agreement, which was kind of very necessary for most people but for her own country she doesn't appear to have achieved a huge amount to reassure them in the past number of months and if nothing is going to change if the U if the EU are saying that is it we're not altering the shape of this agreement is it worth dragging it out for another two years no I think in all honesty another two years would be would be dreadful just for people having to listen to it every <coughs> single day. I know. Be on the news every single day. Um, but I think people are already sick of listening to it. Sick of it, and like as I said before, in another two years' time, that group that voted to leave aren't the same anymore. I mean, yeah, it's a complete figures, change in demographic. Yeah, from figures have shown that it was older generations, and um, mostly that voted to leave and. I mean, if you think about it, people who were nearly seven, like who couldn't vote because they were 17, nearly 18, will be 22 in 2021. I mean, they'll have four years to have been able to vote and, you know, they they won't be able to vote on something that, you know, they're living in the present and will be their future. Um, but then, I mean, again, Theresa May probably can't win because, you know, you have a lot of people saying that the reason why she isn't getting a good deal um, is because she was a Remainer. So, I mean, I don't know what truth Either there is way, in that. She does, have, she does have to provide the best possible outcome for her country. And by not extending Article 50, by coming out with some sort of deal, by not allowing the UK to crash out of the EU, she does appear to be doing the best job that mm -hmm. is possible in her situation at this moment in time. Yeah, so um, I think we will conclude at that. But... 
Um, it's definitely not the end for um, Brexit talks on uh, Newswire talks. <laughs> um, so our next article um, that we just wanted to have a very brief discussion on, um, I saw this on the Irish Times today and just thought it was really interesting. Um, it was um, an opinion piece uh, written by Carl O'Brien and the headline is Student Literacy Levels. It is as almost if they are word blind. Um, so yeah, it was just an interesting piece, kind of, you know, he he is an associate professor here in DCU School of Biotechnology, and, um, sorry, lecturer Greg Foley, this is, the article's by, by uh, Carl O'Brien, but um, featuring in it is Greg Foley, and he is a lecturer here in DCU of uh, Biotechnology, and he basically just kind of was saying that, you know, some of the stuff he's seen is the worst graded and that's even from good students so i mean what like there is a huge issue um with you know kind of how big technology has gotten um with spelling with grammar with just um people writing overall like have you witnessed kind of i suppose just illiteracy nearly in people who are in otherwise very very well educated but one of the most prominent issues with it is that they are not technically illiterate, they are functionally illiterate. So this could be That's something word, as Teresa. Thank you. So this could be something as simple as you're asked for an assignment to produce a graph and your graph isn't labelled or the axes are not correctly numbered, you don't have a proper scale. It's a lot of small things. It might be putting in a comma where there should be a full stop. It's not that the students throughout third level institutes in the country cannot read and write but it's almost as if text speak has come into their academic writing and so we've become lazy. I think it's also interesting to note how many people rely on um, autocorrect for the way that they actually spell things 100%. and you know it's you type out a few a few letters of a word that you're trying to spell and then the whole thing's there so you don't even have to think about how do I spell this word you know you don't have to go back to junior infants when you were first learning how to to actually spell half the words that you're using every day well like because I I think there are two sides to this argument I mean I feel like children are being more and more exposed to um, actual words and stuff because if they are using technology where they have to type in something to look up a video or if they have to, mm. I don't know, they are being exposed to language, to more, you know, just words in general. Um, however, I suppose autocorrect is is an issue because we really do rely on it. Um, because I always had the argument um, with my parents in the past few years that, um, you know, we don't use text speak anymore mm -hmm. however that's actually probably even worse because as you said autocorrect is yeah is such a big part of of our everyday life <laughs> it also means that while we have graduates who are getting degrees in really high skilled jobs our lower level skills are extremely poor and once a student goes into the workplace it's no longer acceptable because it's seen as clumsy. It's a lot of it is basic, is very basic skills. Something like put, not using a full stop. 
would not be tolerated in the workplace because if you were to produce any sort of manuscript, these are the things that are noticed straight away. Yeah, no, it's 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 very messy. Wanna, if you ever find yourself in any kind of situation, um, the way you write and the way you portray yourself um, through a letter is incredibly important. I mean, um, if you ever find yourself in trouble, like in prison or anything like that, you know, if... I mean, prisoners have said this before. If you are able to write, you know, your outline of what you'll do afterwards and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you'll save yourself. I mean, that's a very obscure example, um, example <laughs> there. But you know what I mean? And Eve was right. I mean, see, like, m more things that more people do than go to prison is like CV writing, email mm -hmm. writing. And um, yeah, if you're working in any kind of workplace, you're gonna be writing. You're gonna be writing emails, and yeah. it's just not tolerable to miss a full stop in an email or not use capital letters. Um, something which seems to be really trendy is not using capital yeah. letters online, and I don't understand it. In a lot of things, one Gmail is one of possibly the only kind of um, messaging services on the internet that does not use any form of autocorrect. Mm -hmm. So. In anything else where you're typing, if you type the letter I on its own, it will automatically yeah. change to an uppercase letter. That won't happen in Gmail. And that's where a lot of your kind of professional contact is happening. So I think that's definitely one, maybe explains some part of it. Yeah, um, the article that we're discussing today is taken from an OECD study that was conducted and that was published last week. And another part that is discussed in it is that only 19% of university graduates in Ireland reach higher levels of numeracy, which is considered to be an important benchmark for innovation and building a strong economy. So I think we have a huge kind of engineering sector in the country yeah. at the moment. It's extremely common. But if we're struggling on one of the most basic aspects of that, what will happen to our engineering graduates? Where will they go to? Will Will we actually be able to build that economy here in Ireland at all? Or are we going to have to kind of resort back to taking in immigrants to take over these jobs if our own graduates are not actually educated in the most basic parts of it? Well, I wonder what is the issue there. Um, I mean, you constantly hear of students saying that they struggle with numeracy. And, you know, even really, like, intelligent students will you know joke about their lack of you know knowledge in that area and I mean it seems to be because it's something that isn't isn't really practiced every day I mean everyone has to write everyone has mm -hmm. to that kind of thing but numeracy skills can easily be um forgotten um and is that is that I mean it must be a problem with our education system surely well in comparison the numeracy levels in Finland are 37% and in the Netherlands, 35%. Now, we have... Sorry, what was Ireland again? 20, was Ireland it? was 19. 19. So we have a higher level of higher education graduates than both of these countries, but it's not necessarily serving our economy or our society. We have these graduates who are unskilled, now, the report does state that more research needs to be done into the areas that students in Ireland are having difficulties in learning and developing, but it's definitely, it's definitely a problem that needs to be addressed, and sooner rather than later, because as our economy starts to take off again, if our graduates are not skilled enough 
to take on these jobs, then we do resort back to needing to take in immigrants from other countries to do jobs that we really should be able to do ourselves. And we are very much in danger of getting back into an economic crisis very quickly if that is the way it continues. I think it's very interesting in this article, though, they mention that the Irish third level um, institutions are almost like a one-size-fits-all system so that so many people who are academically unprepared are actually being accepted into courses that just don't suit them and they're not going to come out with the best outcome from it. So that that seems to be a fault of the, the education system as a whole from primary school to secondary school in particular with the whole CAO process and everything and then it just it doesn't seem to be working. And it definitely is reflective in the number of dropouts and in mm-hmm. people failing in their third level college degrees. Absolutely. So it's I've kind of insane as well to have you know a third level uh, like education system where there are no sort of entry exams or interviews and um, what I mean by entry exams is I know obviously we have the leaving cert but that doesn't cater to an individual course yeah. I mean when you went into secondary school all, most secondary schools just have entry exams just to know where you're at or whatever whereas the leaving cert doesn't really tell that much about you yes you you need to get a certain amount points um, to be able to do a course but that's not even what the system is the system is just on popularity yeah I mean if only 10 people apply for a course and there's 20 spaces and one person in that gets 200 points that will be the points you know and so perhaps we should look at you know the UK system and the US system where you know there are interviews and application forms and you know, it's crazy that someone could get, say, for example, a course is 450 points and they get four, four, five, five points below that and don't get the course, whereas someone else who doesn't suit it could have gotten yeah, could have gotten a bit more. But um, anyway, uh, we're going to end the discussion on that. If anyone is interested in reading it, um, that was in today's um today's edition of the Irish Times Online, and um, it was written by Carol O'Brien. So the next article we're going to talk about is the urgent action that's needed to tackle the new HIV crisis and the number of diagnoses in um, 2018 have actually reached an all-time high in Ireland. So this article to me, um, this was also in um, the Irish Times today, um, was quite surprising. I mean, I'd I'd heard a few talks about it over the past week but I didn't realise the, the the really high numbers that we do have compared to we actually have double the European average um, and there are there were 531 new HIV diagnoses in 2018 um, I suppose my surprise with this was you know we always think of kind of HIV and AIDS you know oh that was a problem you know in the 80s, in the 80s and 90s yeah. mm-hmm. um, and it really is it is really sad to hear. Absolutely, and it, it there really isn't excuses in a modern world for people to not be kind of educated on the dangers of HIV because it's it's a re- I can't see how any kind of government or education system can kind of allow this to happen even. 
Well, I would wonder, you know, and, and this was raised, this was raised in the article, and I mean, it's been hugely talked about um, all over the press and the media for especially the past year about Ireland's sex education system, mm -hmm. and it is just not up to par with the rest of the rest of the world. Really, yeah. we are incredibly behind. And I mean, what do you think about just not even the, the education system, but the way sex is talked about in Ireland as a whole? Well, a HIV Ireland report in 2017 flagged that people in the 18 to 34 age group had higher levels of misinformation than any other age group. Um, the age group are most likely to believe that HIV can be passed to another person through a blood transfusion, um, kissing someone or sharing a toilet seat. So I have actually heard people thinking that as well. So, Sex education is rarely addressed in Ireland. It's a subject that may or may not be taught depending on what school you're in, how interested the teacher is. In some schools there's worksheets handed out and they're left up at the top of the room and that's that. If someone comes in to inspect there's something there and whether or not it's been taught is not a priority. It's very much fulfilling the criteria for inspection rather than educating the people in the classroom. Yeah, I think um, I think definitely the younger generation, even though um, maybe not so as 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 you said there that the eighteen to thirty four group are the most misinformed. Perhaps that because that's because we didn't grow up when you know you know HIV would have been really widely talked about talked about in the late eighties. Um, however, I did think that you know our generation was the best for you know talking about sex compared to older generations I feel like we would be more open and you know we would you know we wouldn't label and, and that kind of thing um, that, not, that isn't necessarily the issue though people our age may be talking about it but if the information hasn't been given to us in the first place then until somebody contracts the virus and can start to speak to their peers about it then that information isn't present in the first place yeah, that's true. Um, one thing that I thought was extremely interesting in the article, though, is that there is a preventative medication for HIV known as PREP, which, taken daily, reduces a person's risk of contracting HIV by more than 99% and is at least as effective as condoms at preventing HIV. However, this medication isn't cur currently available in Ireland. And sorry, is that taken before? Like, or is this a one-off? No, what it is a preventative of? medication. Okay. So it's, ta it's taken as a daily kind of supplement for a person that has not contracted HIV. Okay. But I suppose maybe someone in a homosexual relationship might decide to use this as a form of prevention. Yeah. I wonder would... If that came in, would people take it though? People it's take the pill as a form of contraception. That's true, and that's every and day as well. By, yeah. by and large, like people who are engaging in sexual intercourse will use a condom as a barrier for yeah. STDs. When you go to the doctor, you're told that a condom is the only way of preventing them, that it is the only successful <coughs> method. Yeah, and that's not necessarily true. Yeah. And why is it that this preventative medication isn't available in, 
available in Ireland at the moment? Um, the HSE and HICWA are currently in a process to try and make the medication available. However, that process has not gone through all of the steps that are necessary yet. Um, but campaigners against HIV and to, who are lobbying the government to take stronger action say that the process has already taken too long as new diagnosis numbers are reaching alarming, alarming numbers and that they think more urgent action needs to be taken than something that is merely just a preventative. Mm. Yeah, we are going to take a really quick ad break now, uh, but up after secondary schools are experiencing staff shortages, so shortages and do Metrolink plans need to go coexist with Dublin communities? Um, so here in DCU and I think all across the country, um, we're always talking about housing, we're always talking about the lack of housing, um, especially for students. I mean, there's a lack of housing for everyone, but, you know, students are especially kind of taken advantage of um, because, you know, obviously students don't have as much money and, um, you know, accommodation is just, even the student accommodation is really taken advantage of. Um, so one story that was actually out in the College View this week about accommodation um, was that um, the college residences here in DCU were charging, um, well, it was going to be starting this academic year, 2019-2020, they're going to charge students €50 Euro, um, just to apply, just to just to make an application. And even if they didn't get a place, um, they wouldn't get it back. However, after the article came out, um, they took this away, didn't they? Yeah, they since announced that if you don't get offered a place, you will be refunded the 50 euro. But if you accept a place and then you decide that you don't want to stay there anymore for whatever reason you may have, um, they keep the 50 euro in that case because they have put the room aside for you. Okay. So yeah. if you were planning on staying there anyways, it doesn't seem to be the worst thing in the world. But um, in the midst of a housing crisis, it didn't really seem like the the most appropriate thing that DCU could have done. Yeah, definitely. But um, kind of just, you know, on the same lines, housing crisis and all that. Um, the USI Today, um, an article has came out on the Irish Times that um, just they're condemning the delay um, to the tenancies legislation. Um, so Aoife, do you just want to explain a little bit you know, what is this legislation that they want to come through? And do we know, like, there were, like, has there been any progress reports? Do we know when we're going to see a change in tenancies and the legislation around students um, getting accommodation, I suppose? Okay, so currently students who are living in purpose-built student accommodation are deemed licensees, so they're not tenants which means they have fewer rights than what would be granted to a tenant. So last year, rent pressure zone legislation came in, which caps rent increases at 4% per year. That, however, does not currently apply to student accommodation because students in purpose-built accommodation are regarded as licensees. So the USI are pushing for this legislation to be changed. They believe that students in this purpose-built accommodation deserve to be regarded as tenants. That was originally due to go through in April. However, there has been 
little or nothing done about it since. It was kind of put out there as an idea and then shoved to the wayside. So the USI are just kind of lobbying for this now again to try and get that push to bring it over the line because if it does not go through before summer, that means that we will be into the following academic year before anything can be done about it. So students who are applying for student accommodation for the following, for the coming academic year, which will be 2019-2020, will face the same problems that are being faced by students this year and in years previous. So currently we have a student population of 18,000 and that, that is currently in, in UIG alone. So the amount of houses that are short in the country is due to increase up to, I think the article said 26,000 this year from 23. So as the further this legislation gets pushed out, the worse the housing crisis will continue because each year more and more students are going to third level. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it really is crazy that, you know, just because it's not it it's not a privately owned, say privately owned accommodation that students aren't considered tenants, like definitely. Yeah, they're still paying the rent just like everyone else. And in is. most cases it's um it's more it's it's a lot more expensive. Um, look, that is unfortunately all we have time for today. We kind of got a bit of a, a bit of ahead of ourselves, so um, we didn't actually get to talk about the uh, two last stories that we said we were going to before the break. Uh, but don't worry, um, we will have a lot more for you on Thursday. So thank you all for tuning in to today's edition of Newswire Talks. I'm Kira O'Loughlin. I'm Aoife O'Brien. And I'm Anya Boyle. Remember, you can keep up to date with us on Instagram and Twitter at DCU MPS News. Also, make sure to tune in to our SU election special this Thursday at 5pm. And on Thursday from 12 to 2pm, we'll be live streaming the Q&A event on the, in the U. Thanks, guys. See you then. <laughs>